When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the James Bond XZ Podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Pleasure to have you here. How are you guys doing? Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Very good. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you have been listening for a while, welcome back also. Hopefully, if you're a James Bond fan, you'll learn something new from this podcast. You may have heard it all before, but um, maybe you'll just enjoy hearing three idiots blathering on about it. Um, (laughs) Dulcet tones. Dulcet tones. So this is a special episode, another special episode following last week's about Cubby Broccoli. This one's about Barbara Broccoli, Cubby's daughter, and the producer, main co-producer of the James Bond films from GoldenEye onwards, I guess. Um, How have you found... (laughs) <laughs> digging into Barbara Broccoli's life. I'm not going to lie. It It's probably, from all of the research you've done so far, this is probably the trickiest one. And we've just we've just done Cubby, and that was really easy to find stuff out about. So the difference between the two is, is pretty high. Yeah, it's a very stark difference. Such Why do you contrast. think that is? Well, I mean, you've sp- we've spoken about this before, where she's obviously part of a big... A big family, a big film, famous family, and there was probably an element of protection that came from yeah. from Cubby and 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 the family in making sure that she wasn't constantly 
you know, hounded by the press and, and, and people because I imagine there was a lot of people trying to get hold of her just to find out about Bond from a, from a young age. So there's definitely an element of that, I imagine. She's definitely lived a very private life, that's for sure. But um, as the head of one of the biggest film franchises, um, there is plenty of information out there, I guess. But yeah, I yeah, guess... it's quite select, isn't it? There's you, you kind of you find pockets of quite in-depth information around something quite specific, but it, there's not a, a treasure trove of articles and interviews dating back a long way that you you, you do find with um, some of the other people that we've researched. Yeah, well, I thought, thought a quote that I found. Um, about her I thought was quite telling it's uh i don't think i ever knew a time before james bond as far back as i can remember bond has been a huge part of my life yeah 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 i i i found that one as well and it's a pretty you could imagine can't you i mean from when she was a kid she that family was one of the biggest families in the film business for by, by a certain point and i read some interesting articles about how she like the whole of the british film industry they were all like a big family. So Michael Caine and people, all these actors, they were just friends. They were just around each other's houses. They were just working together. So being brought up not only with the Bond world around you, but every other big cinematic kind of event and all the famous people working around them, it's got to have a big effect on you. Yeah, worth mentioning that she's co-producer with Michael G. Wilson, who is her half-brother. Um, and he has a similar connection, I guess, in, in, in that his basically his whole adult life has been defined by the James Bond films and that's really interesting I think it that sort of um as we talked about last week with Cubby that sort of family run business yeah. sort of atmosphere yeah. it's so crucial oh, yeah. to the longevity of the of the series oh completely and, and um we might speak about it we might not but the the children of Barbara and, and Michael J. Wilson uh not together they um that they're, they're already filmmakers they're already script writers um I think Two, the two sons of Michael G. Wilson have worked on previous Bond films as well. So you can see where it's going, uh, which is quite exciting in a way. We'll talk about that a bit more, I imagine, with, with the, towards the end of the podcast. Yeah, let's start at the beginning, as we should do. That, that, was, that was the pre-title sequence. Um, <laughs> now we're about to uh, strap on the parachute. Just, just jumping out the door with a parachute on. <laughs> <laughs> and that parachute will take us back to 1960, when Barbara... Dana Broccoli was born. What what did you learn about her early life, Brendan? Um, it's it's very you know few and far between. But what I did learn, um, she was born in in LA and grew up in London, but also grew up on sets of of Bond because even from when she was a toddler, she was on the set of the first Bond film, Doctor No. So straight from the beginning, she's there, you know, immersed within Bond. Um, she was even present on the the scene where Ursula Andress comes out of the water. She was there with, wow. with her mum. So right from the very start, and one of her earliest memories actually involves being sick on a remote uh, Japanese island Fil- during the filming of You Only Live Twice in 1967. So Hang on, earliest memory, age seven? <laughs> this is what she says. This that's is her earliest a, memory. That's quite, that's quite late, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess it is <laughs> quite a memorable memory then. But it is—it's it a memorable one um, because she was in Japan. She travelled there with her with her father, Cubby. And while they were shooting, you only live twice. Yeah, she she got ill, and there were no Western beds in in on set or or anywhere there um, apart from Sean Connery's because he had one shipped over, and so she he'd found out that she was ill 
and um, he offered to sleep on the floor and gave her the bed. What so, a gentleman! Yeah, she she uh, she actually said, "I got very sick. My parents thought I had sleeping sickness. The only thing to sleep on were traditional bed mats, no western beds. The only western bed had been shipped in for Sean Connery by production." And he went to my mother and said, look, you can, you have a sick child. Take my bed. So I actually slept in Sean Connery's bed, which I'm very happy to say. <laughs> so that's a pretty impressive first memory to have, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I'm just amazed that he's the only one that could command a bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, even Cubby. Well, that was Yonlia twice, wasn't it? <laughs> that was around the time where they were saying, what do you want? What, what do you yeah, need? Anything. A bed? Have it. Yeah, anything. You can have a bed. bed. Donald yeah. Pleasant just gets some straw to sleep on. <laughs> <laughs> so school school holidays, um, she would spend at Pinewood and on location, where they would be shooting Bond. So and 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 that's you know that's pretty much how her childhood was spent, really. And her family, like we touched upon, they kept her shielded from all the sort of press and and all the the fame that comes with Bond. And they did a good job because there's, there's very little mm. to go on. Um, but she I was did... actually wondering when, when we were researching if uh, a lot of the, the re- obviously we're doing a lot of research in books that we can find and, and on the internet, but I'm wondering if there were old magazines or things that ever had interviews that just haven't, that we, just, um, we can't find now. Yeah, because they've um, not been It certainly seems digitized. to be a big grey area of that, that world where it just wasn't mentioned. Well, mm. maybe one of our listeners has, a, has an archive and they can please, enlighten us a bit please more. Please do. Yeah. I suppose in those earlier years, though, before the GoldenEye kind of era anyway, it would have been Cubby that got all the attention about the Bond films, and, and he would have been doing all of the, that, those kind of interviews because she wasn't the producer at that point. So, um, yeah. yeah, there's, there's definite, definite uh, gaps in there. Um, so she, she grew up in a household where Bond was just talked about and referenced so much that she actually thought he was a real person until she was seven. Um <laughs> She said, "I thought like, James like Bond Santa was Claus." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very much so, isn't it? That's yeah. around the similar sort of age. She said, "I thought James Bond was a real person until I was seven or eight. He was always talked about, so I didn't think of him as a fictional character." I wonder if that was before or after she slept in his bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She thought it was James Bond's bed. Um, and then, age seventeen, she uh, went to study motion picture and television communications at Loyola Marymount University in the US. And then from that point on, once she'd studied that, she joined Eon and went to work for them at Pinewood. So that's where her, her proper Bond story then then begins. Uh, well, yes. So I'll take on from there. As you can imagine, her first Bond film that she is properly credited as having a, a, a job in was The Spy of Me when she was 17. But unlike most people who their first job is in the industry at a certain age, I imagine that, that she was still on set involved in stuff before then so it's probably a, a very different first first role that you might have to a normal um everyday person who's just got a job in the film industry she, she she's obviously um well obviously you've got the added point that could be the most powerful man on the set is her dad as well so yeah. it, it was probably an interesting role she she worked in um the publicity department of the spy love me um which she actually talks about as, as saying um it was a really important part of her learnings of the whole Bond series. And, and, and as she became producer, the, what she learned during that was actually quite important because she understood what everyone did as opposed to just coming in as a producer to a, a film later on and, and really just understanding 
what producers do. She she worked with all people across the various departments to do probably some at the age of 17 she was probably doing some quite easy jobs and menial jobs that made her understand what it was like for those people so it's a skill that she took on and, and the learnings that she that she developed as she became a producer and then applied them to you know working with the team and and I'll talk about this later but she's meant to be very good at creating a working environment that is really enjoyable and people like yeah. being there which I think is quite an important aspect of it and when it's when it's a family business and when you've grown up with it it's probably more inclined to being like that because you are working with these people for a long time and as we know from a lot of the other podcasts that we've done some of these people that she's working with she'd have been they would have looked after her when she was when she was a kid because they've been on there so long yeah um i, I read an interesting article uh, with her and uh, and saltzman's uh, daughter it's hillary and she they were talking i think he was saying that uh, morris binder taught her driving lessons <laughs> and um also uh, dressed up as santa claus at christmas so you can see that that imagine like morris binder doing those things for you that's just a normal scenario for you so obviously being so close to these people that it does create that kind of environment that has quite a big family environment but really there's not a lot to say about that role uh, it's, it's not a big position within within the the um the company so she wasn't really delivering anything that people were talking about at the time there's not really any interviews where she talks about it in too much detail so yeah that was just her her first step into the the real world of, of working in bond then obviously she moved on to um bigger roles in the following films yeah well if we email to eon and ask her about these roles that she yeah. had in her, in her earlier we definitely films need to yeah yeah i think people would we'll redo we'll redo the podcast once we spoke to barbara <laughs> So she has got a bunch of credits after The Spy Who Loved Me before she became a, a proper producer on the film with the Timothy Dalton era. Um, the first of which is 1979's Moonraker, on which she has, according to sources, an, a second assistant director role, which is uncredited on the credits. Now, second assistant director, anyone know? Want to hazard a guess at what that does? Absolutely no idea. No. So according to Wikipedia, <laughs> the font of all knowledge, yeah. um, the second assistant director creates the daily call sheets from the production schedule uh, in cooperation with the production coordinator. They also serve as the backstage manager, working with actors, putting cast through makeup and wardrobe, which then relieves the first assistant director of the duties. Um and then they also supervise a third assistant director, assistant director trainees, and also the setting of background extras. So it's a multi-task job. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. you can see straight away learning quite a lot about how the, the industry works quite early on. Yeah, Those are really interesting roles to, to deal with. You've definitely got your finger in a lot of different pies there, haven't you, in, yeah. in the production? You know, makeup, production schedules, all this sort of stuff. It's all invaluable learning i imagine for her on the set now the next one i'm not really sure about but for your eyes only apparently she had a role on that film um, i've not been able to find any evidence of what that might have been and i'm only able to get that information from the james bond encyclopedia which um you know is a really great resource and i trust it because it's from the eon archives but um i can't give you any more information about what she did on for your eyes only then we've got octopussy 
and she's credited as executive assistant on that. This is quite an interesting one, actually. Uh, on Octopus, she, she also apparently did an uncredited gig as assistant director. So again, it was all that sort of behind the scene management sort of stuff. But this is an executive assistant position. So as we've talked about before, Octopussy, there was a lot of um, umming and ahhing with Roger about whether he was going to make this mm. film or not. And when he was not, they hired a casting director called Jane Jenkins. She's a US-based casting director. And they flew her over to the UK and under the cover of that she was here in the UK to cast an actor to play a James Bond type. But obviously she was casting for Bond. Now, Barbara acted as Jenkins' assistant. I'm doing that in air quotes. But actually she was in charge of the whole situation so she, she would sit with Jane, who was the casting director, but ultimately, you know, she had as much say as, as Jane in the, in the decision making. And according to the, the source that I read, she would ask, you know, she would play up to it and be like, oh, can I get you another cup of tea, Miss Jenkins? And so really played the part of, of Jane's assistant. But really, she was pulling pulling the strings there. And then uh, her next uh, film, A View to a Kill. Obviously, we talked about that in great detail very recently. Um, and if you recall... One of her tasks on that was to to ferry Grace Jones every morning to the to the studio and to the, to yeah. the shoots, yeah. and that that crops up in a lot of uh, kind of historical records. I think Roger talks about it in his, um, his his book. So this sort of assistant director, assistant producer role is very sort of it's a very hands on job actually, and so it's all just a learning curve, right? And it's from that transition from Roger to Timothy Dalton, I think that she makes her her, her step up. Yeah. Uh, again, any if anyone's got more detail on, on what I'm going to say, then great, let us know. Um, because she then became an associate producer on these two, um, the two Dalton films, with, with Tom Pevsner. So this is where you start to see the transition. Because Cubby's getting older, of course, and uh, she's given more responsibility. Um, she's involved in the casting as well of of the bond she was very much impressed with sam neil yes and that's 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 who she wanted to use so she's this is much more involved in in everything really overseeing a number of things but trawling the archives there's there's no more she doesn't really talk about this which is surprising because this is the first big leap isn't it really um but there's there's not really much on it but she there is a quote i found I grew up around Bond my whole life and it was such an integral part of my life. I had the benefit of working with my father for so many years. I learned so much from him and how to make movies and James Bond. His passion for it was extraordinary and very contagious. So that's why this, you know, this journey has, has happened. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's got an inevitability about it at this stage now. So she's, yeah, it's, she getting, does, it's getting serious now, isn't it? Yeah. She does the two Daltons and then, and, and Cubby's, getting towards the end of his life and you can see yeah they're going to look for someone to take over Mm -hmm. so although she was there for for dalton coming on board reading about how how he came into it he sort of fell into it right because they they thought they had brosnan and then he got pulled because of remington steel yeah 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 so yeah you got to wonder who's who was making that decision how much of barbara that was taking on Dalton yeah. but it's really when we get to Pierce Brosnan I think uh, sorry 
Brosnan then inherited it from Dalton because he was falling into it. It's really when we get to yeah. Daniel Craig that we really start yeah. to see the decision making at play. But um, yeah, you got to you got to wonder again. It'd be a great question to ask her. You know how involved she was in that in that process at that point. Absolutely, because now they're yeah. they're very close friends now. So obviously the relationship it w- went well from that point on. So maybe she was involved, but we can only speculate. Sadly. Well, that leads us on to probably, I think, for me, the biggest shift in in that Bond has probably ever had until the Craig era, which is Brosnan and, and moving into the 90s. And a lot of factors changed this, obviously. In the run-up to, to GoldenEye, Kobe obviously started getting ill. There's um, there's quite a lot that, in fact, we didn't cover about Kobe's illness um, and over the period of, of GoldenEye and how it happened. But... His, his illness um, and his kind of frailty over that period did mean that he took a back seat in the making of GoldenEye and that's when Barbara and, and, and Michael stepped up. Now, I'm not sure if there was a sense that they were going to step up anyway or if, if it was a result of this. I think I, I've read various accounts of it and it does sound like there's it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think that at that point, Cubby must have been thinking they need to start taking the reins now. There's a new Bond. He was quite old by this point. You, they needed to do it so I think there's probably an, an element of both factors but it did force the hand slightly yeah and there was obviously all the turmoil between those two films right between Licence to Kill and, and Goldeneye yes. but- yeah yeah so the there was a six year gap between the making between Licence to Kill being released and Goldeneye being released and that was because of the whole problem with MGM merger with Parthe and that just went on for quite a while and it obviously had a massive impact I won't go into the details of that problem because it's not really to do with Barbara but that did have a massive repercussions for the Brosnan era because there were six mm. years passed between that last film and the new film so big changes and those big changes had ramifications across the whole of the next bit of the series because obviously that six year gap was a big problem for for Bond because License to Kill didn't do very well at the cinema it wasn't a ridiculously successful Bond film you might have been able to save it if you'd released a film quite shortly after that that did well because that's how Bond works there's fluctuations in it but six years was the longest time that there'd ever been between Bond films and I remember at that time thinking would there ever be another Bond film it was quite a shock when Goldeneye came out to see it because it felt like it'd been an age between Bond films and as kids at at our age I think it felt like there hadn't been a Bond film because I don't remember the Dalton films coming out we'd only ever seen them on video yeah yeah I I, I agree like it's it was the first Bond because yeah, I was born in 86 so obviously I was too young for the Dalton ones yeah and then you get to 95 you're like oh what's this this is exciting yeah yeah, the yeah it was almost like people had forgotten yeah. for, for, for us it was like oh Bond that's that that film that I, the old films I watched with dad it's not yeah uh, they brought him back it was like a massive renaissance for Bond wasn't it and it was mm. a it was very exciting, but also Barbara talks about this quite a lot in that um, there was a lot going on at the time. There was obviously everything happening with, with Cubby's frailty and getting older, but they just did what they knew what to do best. They just made the film as best they could and, and they didn't know if it was going to work, but obviously it did. And it proved to the world that people still wanted Bond and Bond could develop as as time went on. It was, mm-hmm. um, And I remember thinking that at the time, they've done it, they've managed to create a new bond that feels still feels like like bond so 
other things happened at that time. It, Richard Maybaum and John Glenn, they, they left the series. Broccoli parted ways with them. Massive shift. Suddenly you're losing the old guard and there's, there's, you're bringing in new directors and all this kind of stuff. And Cubby was interested in bringing new people to the series, including Barbara and Michael. And that, obviously that's the first time that they've really held that. If you look at any of the documentation, that's the big point where they, they become important within that series mm. and that's where they start doing interviews and that's where they start really speaking about bond and the future of bond uh, robert wade who co-wrote uh, a number of the bond films he says that they just as a pair they worked unbelievably well together barbara is very much concerned with the emotional side of the story as well as the relevance of it now whereas michael he's got a very good story brain and has a macabre dimension that allows us to keep the inflaming flavor of the thing and that's if you think about it Michael G. Wilson was heavily involved with a few, few of the films before then, but this is really when Barbara gets involved. And you can see that side of what Michael's doing in the earlier ones, but you can't see anything of what Barbara's doing, really. And yeah. and that comes into much bigger play over the late ones, especially the Craig era, where that emotional side becomes very, very prominent. Well, it becomes the super you can text, kind of doesn't see, it? Yeah, and you can kind of see little touches of it in Dalton's, but not only just, and it's not it's not very... You'll see as we we go through that, that it becomes quite quite more um, significantly more important uh, as, as it moves along. Interesting. Another another point between the Golden Eye the shift is that the Cold War era had also finished, mm. and that was that the wars and that Cold War. You know, the last couple of decades was that underpinned a lot of Bond films. General Golgol and everyone were always in it. It was like the basis of bond if they he the, the, russia was like the unseen baddie in so much of it even even mm. when it wasn't russia meant to be the the baddie they russia was always in there as, as some kind of like floating presence and that gone and and that that shift has a lot of noticeable effects on the film in fact there's the point where you see cold warrior statues toppling in golden eye yeah. and there's obviously a lot of russia Ru- russia in golden eye but it's almost like saying we don't need this anymore we're going to mm. move on from this well there's that line and, from m isn't there about calling bond a, a relic of uh, of the cold war yeah well yeah. i'm glad you brought m up because that's probably the most important thing barbara did for quite a long time it was her decision to cast judy dench in the role of m which is probably one of the biggest things that's ever happened in any of the bond films it's it's a massive, important male character being turned to a female character. It also happened two years after Stella Remington became director general of MI5 uh, in 1993. So you can see, Barbara is on trend. She's 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 moving with the times, and she's she's taking these things that maybe if she hadn't been you know joined the helm of this, that might not have happened. And and it it has repercussions throughout the whole massive repercussions into the Craig era. If that hadn't happened in the Craig era the story the films would be very different um, indeed so yeah so there's a lot going on at the time um, and obviously it turned out pretty good yeah, they I were think... pretty pleased with GoldenEye they, they'd yeah. shown that it, you know Bond was still there and suddenly it opened this whole new series for Bond in the 90s but thinking about it and I'll go through the other films briefly in a minute it's, it's quite a difficult time and I think that as we talk about Craig later that era was when they, they really took over because there were still a lot of things that were happening that were as a result of the previous film. Cubby still was floating up. Cubby had set up GoldenEye. Cubby had mm. been so heavily involved in that. It was still a Cubby film. They hadn't made all of the major decisions on it. They were still, you know, they were still assisting the, the, the guy who owned it all. Um, and a lot of those decisions that happened on GoldenEye probably had repercussions later on. I mean, 
BMW. I'm not sure who made that deal, but that lasted for three three films. There, there's certain things that happened over the 90s which might have been fallback from the previous eras of Bond, and it wasn't for a while until they could shake those and really make a difference. Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, interestingly, I didn't realise this. Tomorrow Never Dies. That apparently they were writing the script for Tomorrow Never Dies while they were writing the script for Goldeneye because they, mm. you know, they, they they take so long to do these things that they wanted to get a head start. And I don't know if that's a common thing. I've certainly never heard it before. But I suppose if it's a, a Bond film, you've, you're kind of expected to go. We're probably going to make another one of these. Let's let's get it started. If you, yeah, if you read um, Mark Edlitz's book about the the lost James Bonds, there there's. The times where the two scripts are working side by side and often they'll have competing yeah. scripts and competing ideas and then they'll just go with the stronger one but uh, yeah that's that's interesting they were working on it at the same time I guess they had that six year gap and they really wanted to hit the ground running when they could mm. yeah. yeah but that does go to show you that there's still fallout from previous like they're writing the, the script probably when Cuppy was there Cuppy probably sourced Tomorrow Never Dies scripts and it was, was, was putting in, in, input into them so and then just another interesting um, point about that. John Barry uh, was in talks to return to the Bond films but uh, it, it, for the first time in a decade, but they couldn't reach an agreement over his fee. So it was Barbara who, who chose David Arnold to score Tomorrow Never Dies on recommendation from Barry. So pretty big, another big decision um, that, uh, that obviously plays into the, even to the Craig era. And then the other, the other thing with Tomorrow Never Dies as well is that there was a massive jump in the production budget. Goldeneye was pretty small. It was, it was a um, cheap Bond film, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so um, Goldeneye was 60, 60 million. And then Tomorrow Dies goes up to 110 million, which obviously offers the success of Goldeneye. And you can see that in Tomorrow Never Dies. It's There's a lot more in it. There's a lot more action. There's a lot of big scenes. And then onto The World's Not Enough. Interesting point that, uh, about Barbara in that is that in November 1977, a month prior to the release of Tomorrow Dies, Barbara Buckley um, watched a news report on Nightline uh, about the world's major oil companies vying for control of untapped oil reserves in the Caspian Sea. And it was this that sparked the idea, really, for The World's Not Enough. And, yeah, that's Barbara seeing something that's happening and, and wanting to... T- take a take hold of it and of course it's yeah it works really well i think it's it's one of the, the stronger definitely from a story point of view that's probably one of the stronger films that um is in that that Brosnan era yeah very memorable um, isn't and, it so it's, it's a clear hook isn't it for that film yeah and then going on to the actual film itself i think world is enough is really the time when barbara comes into play i think this is that's the first film and i think they Tomorrow Dies probably had hang-ups from Goldeneye and the time before, but World's Not Enough, it was almost wasn't like those two films. It was very different. They got Michael Apted in to do the directing we've, that um, we've spoken about. So very emotional Emotional film. bond. Yeah, very mm. original. Very, very, um, yeah, very emotional bond. Very, there's a lot of depth to it. Obviously, and I'll talk about this in a bit as well, um, Barbara Buckley is very focused on equality and and workplaces and 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 focusing on women in the industry and the storytelling of of how to do female characters and obviously world's not enough that's a big one for that and we've we've t- we talk about that as well where it's the first bomb film to really have a strong female villain in in a role that is actually a very tangible good character yeah. um it's not a caricature it's not stupid it's got there's i mean it's, there's a twist in it about her that's that's really quite impressive throughout the film spoilers so it's the first sorry spoilers well yeah 
I, I'm, I'm guessing most people listening to this might have watched it, but uh, if they haven't, uh, I'll, uh, I'll keep that quiet. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the that that film really does is a high point, I think, for storytelling in the in the Brosnan era, and has echoes that goes into the Craig era based on the kind of depth of it and, and how the storytelling and characterization is done. Which then takes me on to Die Another Day. <laughs> so, um, so Die Another Day was obviously. The, the end of the Brosnan era and the way that the world was working and the way that the, the industry was working it it was a massive action film it, they pushed the bar in any way they could to the points of doing really quite over the top things and it was it it did very well at the cinema it, the, at the time it was the highest grossing Bond film that, that, that there had been but um, afterwards they there's a lot of interviews about the shift because obviously Daniel Craig era is where all of the interviews all of the document documentaries are really about that you find where, where, where Barbara is quite vocal and, and talks about it quite a lot um, so there's a lot of talk about how it did get too ridiculous and, and Barbara said this in interviews and that they needed to bring it back to earth but the other reason as well was 9-11 which had a big impact on their decisions to change that as well because um after 9-11, it seemed inappropriate to make light of Bond's ambition to save the world. It would suddenly became, it had to be serious because you couldn't just make a stupid throwaway film where there were terrorists and doing these things. Mm. So, um, so so obviously that moves on to the development later on. But just before I, I, I we move on to Daniel Craig, um, The World's Not Enough is probably the time where the, the I talk, spoke a bit about Barbara on, on set and how she creates this atmosphere for kind of safety and um uh, for women and there was an, an interesting um rosamund pike spoken about this and speaks about she talks about how on die another day which was her first brush with hollywood i look back over my experience and think my goodness barbara broccoli was way ahead of all this me too movement uh, there wasn't an ounce of feeling uncomfortable while i was on that set and i can imagine that and i don't know if this is true but the films in you know 1960s 1970s there's got to be a lot of you know, male domination around that time. There can't have been a particularly yeah. gender relaxation period for, for women. Having her involved in those films, she's picked up on this and she's spoken to all the, the teams. She knew all of the cast and the crew. She probably understood this and it's pretty big deal that, you know, Cubby had a daughter that to get involved in that and really and really take those, those steps forward. You read those uh, Roger Moore diaries and it, it talks about the photographers who would come to set to take basically photos of the background extras, the female background extras for like photo shoots and what have you. And like, yeah, topless photos. Like if you look through the archives, uh, like on Thunderballs, the, um, the, the online James Bond photo archive, there's like, just like topless photos of, of yeah. the background yeah, yeah, yeah. extras. And that sort of stuff was rife back in those days. Not going to yeah. happen now, especially not no. in the me too area. No, but, but yeah. Yeah. But even in the nineties, and, and the late 80s that would probably still happening that kind of thing it wasn't it wasn't until you know 2000s where this it's really been a focus yeah. but it sounds like barbara was ahead of that she mm. she she kind of helped pave the way for that in a lot of ways which you know you'd expect from 
somebody who'd worked in the industry and seen all of the problems that exist in it and yeah a and, massive testament and had, well, had, to, had the power to make that change that's the most important exactly thing, exactly yeah. yeah well a lot of people say that she is the most powerful woman in in, in the movie industry um which yeah probably is um in terms of the films that she does and the people she has an effect on uh, as, as well as that probably worth mentioning that uh, she did try to get the jinx film made do you remember this one yeah never actually did happen apparently um mgm got cold feet about it after the film's 80 million pound budget was suggested so that never actually got off the ground so that's, ha- that's um, the halle berry it- spin-off from die another day right yeah and there's a lot of talk and when you when you read and i'll talk about a little bit about this in, in a bit as well but um when you read a lot about barbara and the film she's making there's a, so many articles about is there going to be a female bond when's the when's the female bond and she's very adamant that bond is a man and women mm. shouldn't take second place and you shouldn't build a character or just just take a character that you've already got that's a man and turn it into a woman because that's unfair to women it's it's they should have their own strong characters maybe jinx was a way to do that an early an early attempt at doing that but yeah never got never got off the ground and um i think i'm I'm quite pleased that didn't happen. Um, and just to finish on the Brosnan era, there's a lot. There's a, there was a lot of uh, during the transition. Obviously, Brosnan was in the, the news quite a lot, and um, really, it, it, he he talks a bit about how how the, it ended. And apparently, it was a fo- just a phone call, a very simple, quick phone call. Barbara was crying on the phone. Michael, very stoic, just says, "You were a great James Bond. Thank you very much." And in response, Brosnan just says, "Thank you very much. Goodbye." And that's it. That's mm. the end of the the Brosnan which I think is is quite nice and 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 clear. I think it's probably. I don't know because um, um, he was he was due to make a fifth film. It was announced that he was making a fifth film, but I think there was yeah. just a, a, a just a confluence of uh, of circumstances that meant that they pulled the plug. We'll cover that in much more detail when we talk about Brosnan, which is coming yeah. up very soon. Actually, a special Ooh, episode of Pierce that Brosnan. Uh, just be Brendan talking for ninety minutes. Maybe I'll get a word in anyways. Intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll talk a, a lot about uh, about that. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely a, 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 a case that says you know the 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 classic era of Bond ends in 1989 and a whole new era. There's a yeah. line in the sand, isn't there? License to Kill yeah. is the old era. Goldeneye is is and that forward is is the whole yeah. new era, and that's defined by Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, isn't it? Yeah, but I th- I think that the 90s era, the Brosnan era, is actually a little bit of a cursed era, really, because it is that transitional phase. And there's certain points of it where it, it, it is quite jumpy. The, the, the elements of the storyline, they're not as consistent as you would expect from, like the Sean Connery ones. There's a very consistent style and there's a very consistent ethos that goes through the characters and everything. Whereas the Brosnan one, it's very jumpy. And you, if you compare GoldenEye to Die Another Day or World's Night Another to GoldenEye all very different films he plays yeah. he always plays a different bond in 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 the later ones to the to the first one um especially dying of a day but i, probably I think it's probably a lot to do with the four different directors that they hired in that era yeah. i think yes yeah. there was a lot of um it was a yeah a weird time yeah. again we'll talk about that more when we get to brosnan yeah. but i guess yes yeah. so let's so the big one let's move on to craig Yes, yeah, so we are now uh, entering the the Daniel Craig era, and as as you mentioned, Jinx, I think 
after Die Another Day was a big project that Barbara was really trying to get off the ground and it got really far down the path until it got the the plug got pulled on that by um, MGM. Halle Berry recently has said that uh, she thinks it's because the studio thought that female-led female action films and with a woman of colour would be struggle at the box office, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, so really it's at this point that Barbara and Michael G. Wilson face their sort of sternest challenge yet, right, in recasting Bond. As I said before, you know, they inherited pretty much Dalton and Brosnan as hangovers from the Cubby era. And now this was the chance to really forge their own path. Um, and at the time, I mean, you can remember as well as I, it was such a bizarre casting. It mm. seemed a bizarre yeah. casting at the time. Yeah, yeah, I watched that scene yesterday of him. Is he on like a boat or something? He's got his long hair. Yeah. And people, there's like, People complaining in the newspaper the next day about it. Because he'd been wearing look... a, uh, a life vest. Yeah. He, he does look... like it's, when you, If you're used to Bond and you're a fan of Bond, as soon as you saw that, you were like, what the heck, what's going on? Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, they were working with Martin Campbell, who was very closely worked with them. Obviously, he did Goldeneye. Now he's coming back to do Casino Royale. Mm. And they worked very closely with Martin Campbell to, to recast. And he was not... He was not convinced by Daniel Craig, uh, Martin Campbell, but Barbara and Michael say they only ever wanted Daniel Craig. And obviously at this time, you know, Henry Cavill was in the mix. Sam Worthington was in the mix, uh, a bunch of different people. But but they really, you know, they saw Daniel and, and that's who they wanted. Quote from Barbara said, he brought flesh and blood to the character. Bond in the novel is a silhouette. But Daniel has given him depth and an inner life. We were looking for a 21st century hero and that's what he delivered. He bleeds, he cries, he's very contemporary. And it, it, mm. that just says everything about, you know, the Daniel Craig era, doesn't it, I guess? They were working from Casino Royale, the the holy grail for them, really. It had been the holy grail for, for Eon for such a long time. And it was only through, I think, through, through working with Sony on, on releasing these films that they were been able to get the rights back to those films, to, to that yeah. to that film. And so they were really taking it back. And they wanted. Well, what did um, Barbara always say about that? Cubby said to her, "If you ever need, if you never need to get kind of get back to it, go back to Fleming. Go back to Fleming. Mm. Yeah, always mm. go back to Fleming. Yeah. And what's interesting though is how actually cipher like." Bond is in Casino Royale. He's the least fleshed out. You'll see it, Bond, but he does go on a great journey with with Vesper, and I think that was was the thing that they were really clinging on to. Right, is is the relationship with Vesper and how they could really present Bond as a sort of a proto Bond. You know, he was f- yeah. wasn't fully formed. He was going to fall in love. He was very green green behind the ears. No, wet behind the ears. Green <laughs> green gills. Green, green guild. Yeah, no. <laughs> all of them. Uh, and this is another quote f- from Barbara. This is one of the things about Daniel is that he he's letters into Bond's inner life. We see and feel him from a much more intimate place. In the books, you can look into his inner conflicts and fears and anxieties, but it's very hard to put that on screen without making him look neurotic. And I think, yeah. you know, that's what Dalton was trying to do and perhaps yeah. didn't quite yeah, it, meet it. Yeah. He didn't have the backing, did he, of, of everyone else? No. He he was trying to do something that he wasn't really allowed to do. And ahead of the time, Craig's probably ahead, well, ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah it, it wasn't really his fault. But yeah, Craig 
he's got the support of everyone to do it. Yeah, yeah. Must be quite a nice role to have. And so they talk about you know how how, how the the relationship with Vesper and, and his portrayal by her becomes like the crux of his whole era, really. Um, yeah. And so finding him as a you know thinking back you know the, i think the only thing i'd ever seen in him was layer cake by the time I, i'd seen him and he's great yeah. in that film mm-hmm. he's a, he's got a real presence and they must have seen that in him but looking yeah. back you know it was a it felt like a weird decision at the time but such a great yeah. one that they it, made it was inspired though wasn't it it was it, there, it was such a smart move to ignore the public yeah and the, because the public do just they want more of the same don't they but slightly different they didn't do that they made it very different and it it was what it needed, and it was yeah, it's an inspired show. It was a massive gamble, but really, really worked. And I I even remember like for a long time, people would say, oh, you know, Pierce Brosnan, he's, he'll never be as good as Pierce Brosnan. Even after Casino Royale came out, it was like there was still talk about Pierce Brosnan being being their <laughs> yeah, Bond, yeah. and it's it seems silly now, but um, I guess that's just there's the a website, of it, isn't wasn't it? there as well? Blonde Bond. Yeah, not not no. blonde bond. <laughs> no, but uh, Craig Craig not Bond Craig not Bond. Yeah, it's. It's true, though, isn't it? You look at... This is why Bond, the Bond series is different, because if you look at any other film series that has different directors, different writers all the time, and there's no real ethos or family ethos behind it, it the character, the actor, is so important because if you get the wrong actor in those films, the only reason you go and watch those films is for the actor. Whereas Bond, Bond is just part of it, isn't it? It's really... Barbara Bro- As long as Broccoli's are there it's still got that same ethos and you, you can kind of trust it. So like when the next Bond comes out, the, the, the mentality, I, well, it will still be, it, it might be too, the, the guy might be too tall or it might be too short or something. But I think you're probably working with the principle that you, you kind of have to trust that Barbara and Michael G. Wilson know what they're doing and mm. th- that they're going to take the right risk because they don't want it to go wrong. They'll have done so much work to choose these people. I, th- I think the most important thing about Daniel Craig is he makes Bond feel like a real person and that also comes yeah. across in how they you know, script the films and how they plot the films. It's very, very grounded in terms of what's what can happen and he you feel him when he when he gets hurt, you, you know, that comes across. He, you feel yeah. it for him. The big thud. Uh, emotionally and physically um, yeah. but yeah talking about the backlash Barbara said um, it's absurd I think that that's the trouble with the internet now everyone has an equal voice so people read something something they believe has been written with great authority and actually it's just a 12 year old in a little town somewhere in some place in the United States they'd never, they'd never even seen Daniel Craig they don't know what he's capable of um, and it just th- this backlash starts a fire and then yeah. people start talking about it and it's given prominence and it just becomes bizarre yeah and so she says of course we were making the film and we knew what we had so we just ignored it you know and then and then obviously yeah. the proof was in the pudding with casino royale right absolutely yeah. but you look at you can see there's films made nowadays that are essentially made by social committee people listen to what you know social media is saying and and the feedback and then the films created off the back of it quite often doesn't work because really you, you it's the creators that need to, to to push the boundaries and make something new you can't just do what people want because people want what they know well yeah. that's it and that's something to you know compare with star wars mm. and those those sequels the recent ones whether you like them or not they are films that are made by committee Force Awakens very much you know just mind the nostalgia and and, and you can't really aim that at Casino Royale uh, yes it has nostalgia yes it, it puts the DB5 in there but it's trying something new it gen- genuinely mm. is trying something yeah. new 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I get a feeling that Die Another Day feels a little bit like Made by Committee, just throwing in visible cars and stuff that people have suggested, investors have said we need these new things in. But yeah, it, but obviously that's, you know, it, Casino Royale is almost the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, from there, we've got had Quantum of Solace, a film hamstrung by the writer's strike. Mm. Um, and then Skyfall, a huge triumph, I think. Um, personally, I think it's it's the best of the Craig films. And then Spectre, which we'll get to that when we get to S, but I think had its problems, had its own problems um, in a sense. So. Yeah under Barbara's stewardship they've had you know a pretty good run and I think it's secured the future right people are talking about Bond more than ever right and that's because of the work they've done um oh it's incredible and you look at the 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 gross of those films they they just go up every year and look at Skyfall it's absolutely phenomenal as soon as you see that you think well there's no way Bond's going anywhere no you couldn't Um, even contemplate you can't have said that in earlier films not not making another one could you you couldn't imagine them saying no. that that's just no yeah so it's an incredible job they've done i mean and look right now where we're at with no time to die being delayed people are desperate for it people really want it like well look at the, the, the effect it had when they pulled it from november the release schedule from november obviously they delayed it uh, nearly a whole year but it was that final delay from november to this year that really pulled the plug on the whole of rest of last year's cinema slate yeah. it's yeah. crazy yeah yeah, I, I was actually when when I heard that I was surprised at how powerful Bond is because I often think of Bond because I've always been a fan. I often see it as not niche, but there's a certain group of people that love Bond, and and that's that's how it's always been. But it's not. It's one of the biggest films mm-hmm. for everyone nowadays. People people who don't even care about Bond really, yeah. they want to see that film. And I think yeah. that was the risk, wasn't it, going into this new era, was that it would just be, you know, for the older yeah. fans. But it's mm. it's it's a four-quadrant movie now. You know, the older and the younger both yeah. like it in equal amounts, really. And that's Fair down to, yeah. to Daniel Craig and this sort of new mythos that they've set up for him. Yeah. But it does put an incredible amount of pressure on the next move. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we we should probably do a whole episode on what we think should happen in, a, in as it develops because that's a, a whole 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 world of where they could go and stuff like that. Yeah. But, well, um, but we know yes. from what what Barbara has said is you know it, he can be any color, he can be yeah, um, um, uh, he can he can put, come from anywhere, but he will always be a man. So we know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think they will go for a diverse bond and I think it's about time. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that's absolutely going to happen um, yeah. with the next yeah. and one. I th- but I think, yeah, but I think with Bond and the Broccoli's, that, that kind of move towards diversity, obviously there's a big push in all industries, in all jobs to, to do that. But I think Bro- the Broccoli's will only do that if it's the right thing yeah. and if it's, if it's the right person for the job. So I, I, I kind of like that that sentiment but it could be that it doesn't happen for a while where in the past they will have only looked for the bond type right i think now they probably feel emboldened to be able to expand their horizon a bit more yeah. mm-hmm. and i'm excited to see yeah. what they do next so obviously barbara is is renowned for the her work in the bond films but it's not the only films that she produced um uh, and also not the only medium she works in um well she did tv and stage work didn't she yeah, so she's she's done work outside of Bond, like you say. Once when her father died in nineteen ninety six, 
she worked with theatre producer Michael Rose to create uh, the stage musical version of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So we mentioned Chitty Chitty Bang Bang again. Gets another mention on the podcast. So she she wanted to put this on in the in the West End. She rehired the original songwriters, who were the Sherman Brothers, who wrote five new songs, and it debuted in two thousand and two, and it it was huge. It's uh, uh, and back to her father's sort of motto of everything or nothing. She threw money at this stage version of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The flying car itself cost seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Bear in mind, it doesn't actually fly. <laughs> Um, so that is a it's a Guinness World Record in terms of uh, a, a prop for it, as you would imagine, you know, the most expensive prop. The complete set cost six point two million, which wow. is the most expensive in British history. It beat Cats, knocked Cats off the top, which was six million. So she's, and I guess this is where you see where, like you say, with the world is not enough. She wanted to put uh, emotion into it. This resonates because she's. She's big on the theatre and putting putting plays on and musicals. Uh, so she did a stage play of Chariots of Fire as well. So she says, The film had such an impact on me in 1981. I was very good friends with Dodie Fired, who was keen to get involved in filmmaking. So I ended up helping him become an executive producer on the project. So that's where her links with Chariots of Fire started. And then she co-produced the stage play with the director, Hugh Hudson. He directed the 1981 film and they worked on that together so she produced the 2012 play she's done quite a, uh, a long list of plays that she's been involved in la Carva, a steady rain if you've seen any of these jump in by the way <laughs> uh, i had a look earlier i definitely haven't seen any of these. no catwalk confidential once strangers on a train love letters othello no, no. keep them coming kid stays in the picture <laughs> the country girls so it's quite extensive. So she, she, it's not just Bond, although she's known for Bond. She has got other stuff going on, including an independent production company called Astoria Productions. Mm. Um, Astoria was where her father lived and was brought up. So I'm guessing that's not confirmed, but I've just put two and two together there and hopefully made four. <laughs> and she helped produce Crime of the Century for HBO. So she's also involved in, in some TV work as well. But in terms of non-Bond films with Eon... Well, let me explain. In- interestingly, if you look at like Cubby's filmography, he started in the industry before Bond existed. So he did quite a few films that weren't Bond. He, he, he kind of moved around and probably learnt that he wanted to do Bond-style films. Yeah. Um, Barbara, obviously, being part of the Broccoli family, has only really known Bond. So there's not really a lot of other films that she's actually done. There's two main ones that, that she's really focused on, and they're both quite interesting from a from what we know of Barbara now after running through this podcast. They're, they're quite interesting from a, a number of angles. The first that, um, that I'm going to talk about is the is a film called Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Have you heard of this one? Yes. Yeah, Jamie Bell. Jamie Bell. Uh, that's in 2017. I didn't know a lot about this, but um, I sat watching trailers and reading about it and now I, I do really want to see it it sounds really interesting it's a biographical romantic drama uh, directed by Paul McGuigan so the the film itself is it stars Annette Benning and Jamie Bell uh, and it's got Vanessa Redgrave and, and Julia Walters in the cast so some pretty big big names in that film it's based on the memoir of Peter Turner who was an actor a young actor in, in the 70s and he met 
Gloria Graham. And I don't know if you know anything about Gloria Graham. She's an old uh, 1940s and 50s actress. You probably, the only film you probably know her in is It's a Wonderful Life. She did a lot of films, but she's one of the main characters in that. Very, very good character in that, in fact. So anyway, in the 1970s, the, the film is set in the 1970s and Gloria Graham meets Peter Turner. It's a real story. This really did happen. And they had a relationship. He was a young guy, played by Jenny Vale. She was she was in her 50s. I won't get too much detail about the, the film. So she got ill, though, during the relationship with Jamie Bell's character. And I think it was stomach cancer that she she eventually she suffered from. And the story covers that and, and how a relationship developed. And he moves to America to live with her. And she, she doesn't tell him that she's got this disease and he doesn't know what's happening. So it's quite a quite deep and, and quite emotional film as you would imagine from Barbara. Of course. Um, and I try to find out why she did it, because normally there's a reason why people do these films, especially if you're only really associated with one series. Why would you pick a, a, a film that seemingly has nothing to do with the Bond series or, or, or your history? And really, it just seems that it's a film that's, that was just floating around for years and years. Um, I think in one interview she says that she's been wanting to make it for 22 years. And apparently she also, she knew... Gloria Graham and I, I think I'm not sure that she also knew Peter Turner as well and so it's obviously a personal project for her and she wanted to make this story because she, she was quite close to it and um, yeah it just it's yeah really interesting really interesting concept uh, the film was it was a box office flop so it grossed 4 million against a production budget of 10 million but it received quite good reviews so it's like people think it's quite a, a good film it just didn't do very well so yeah, that's that's the first big film that she did, which is a, a, a move away from the, the Bond series. The second film she did was in 2020. Now this is more interesting in, in the Bond world and based on what we know about Barbara and what she's been trying to do with Bond. It's, an, it's a 2020 action thriller that's uh, directed by Reed Morano. I, I, I don't know a lot about Reed Morano, but her biggest credit is um, she's the first woman in history to win both the Emmy and the Directors Guild Award for directing a drama series in the same year. Handmaid's Tale. Uh, for Yeah, she did the pilot episode of The Handmaid's Tale and I, I think a couple of other episodes of it. So this the film is... Um, you haven't said what it's called yet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the rhythm section. <laughs> the rhythm section. Um, the plot is very familiar um, but in not not in the way that you'd, you'd probably expect. Blake Lively plays a character called Stephanie Patrick, who is a woman who's lost her, her job, her entire family, sorry, in a plane crash, causing her to develop a drug addiction and become a prostitute to support her habit. But then she finds out the crash was staged, so um, she eventually tries to find out who caused the crash, and she trains under a former spy, learning combat, intelligence gathering, disguise skills, and then takes the identity of a freelance assassin, Petra Reuter. Jude Law plays Ian Boyd, who's the former MI6 operative who now lives in a cabin and trains her to take on this mission and and find out who who actually did it. So, yeah, you can see there, there's links, isn't there, to Bond. Mm -hmm. And we've talked before about Barbara wanting to create these roles for women and not giving them the Bond role, but creating these new ones. And obviously, in a lot of the the discussions and interviews that took place, that's a focus of them. Is is this a a new character, a new Bond character that you're creating, a new a new franchise? There's not. She doesn't really talk about that. She doesn't really say that this, that's that that was the plan when they were doing this. But obviously, there are links links to that. On Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a uh, an average rating of twenty eight percent based on one hundred seventy two reviews. Not very many. Uh, an average rating of four point seven four. In uh, Peter De Bruges, 
who was writing about the film in Variety, noted that Stephanie, unlike the female assassin protagonists in films like Atomic Blonde, Red Sparrow and The Femme Nikita, displayed a realistic near incompetence in the face of danger that makes her relatable in ways that very few cinematic assassins have ever been. Which, if that's what the aim was, is a pretty good job from from Barbara and not you can imagine quite easily to make these if, if you were going to do a film like Jinx those films sound quite familiar don't they Atomic Blonde Red Sparrow La Femme Nikita and she probably I don't know if it if it, it had an effect but that whole time of trying to make Jinx must have had an effect on the films that came later so who, know, who knows if that was why she made the film but um, it's it's definitely there's definitely links to 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 bond in there and and, and the the, the storyline so so that's it really that's that's what um they're the two the two films that kind of sit outside of the the whole bond canon yeah interesting uh oh, michael g wilson worked on those films as well i believe um yes he, he did he's not credited on imdb but he, yeah he did yeah so i guess that's that's sort of barbara broccoli just a few things just to, to, to note um she was made an obe 2000, in 2008 and she spends a lot of time mentoring young directors apparently because obviously Bond films only come along every so often she must have a lot of time to do a lot of other philanthropic yeah. work but she said that I despair because women certainly have their voice in so many other areas I don't know why it's been so difficult to get women in the industry into the industry in terms of directing film so rhythm section obviously directed by a female director and I think we'll see mm you know likely that we'll get a female director on bond very soon as well yeah, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of articles where, where that's that's a focus and that's that would be very exciting to see what happened with yeah, that. yeah definitely um and in 2016 barbara was appointed bafta's vice president for film a few things that she said well so I've, this is a quote from daniel craig actually this was when he was talking about uh, coming back i think for spectre or no time today he says barbara doesn't take no for an answer says daniel craig it's not in her wheelhouse i had a nice long break which i really needed and then she was just persistent and came to me with some ideas which we started formulating and i got excited again um I guess that's, that's interesting to note as well that now Daniel Craig acts as a producer on these films as well. The first Bond actor to act as a producer. Oh, really? Yeah. And again, that just thinks, speaks of her collaborative nature, I think. Yeah. yeah. Certainly feels like there's a different style to how the films are made now, which I mean, that, you find that on a lot of uh, kind of fi- way films are made now. There's a very different way to the olden days of, of those set formats and who who's involved. But... Yeah, it certainly sounds like she makes a nice working environment and people want to work with her. But yeah, I love I love the, hearing them talk about Daniel Craig when they're talking about Bond. They don't entertain the notion of there being a next Bond. <laughs> no, yeah. I've they're, got a quote from her, which she said uh, post No Time to Die. I'm in total denial. I've accepted what Daniel has said, but I'm still in denial. It's too traumatic for me. She's not accepting it, is she? Well, no. there's got there's that, but then also I think you've got to back your own horse, haven't you? And I think yeah, when you start true. talking about the next one and you've got still got a film to come out, I think that becomes like <clears throat> yeah. counter counterintuitive. Well, Craig is basically her Connery, isn't isn't he? She's, That's true. Yeah. She created Craig. She created this fairly important character in 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 the annals of Bond, and and I imagine that it was the same scenario when they got rid of Sean. Mm-hmm. It must have been they didn't want to let him go, did they? Well, he didn't go, very... did he? He came back. Well, I came back, yeah. Maybe that'll happen with Craig. Yeah, who's going to be the Lazenby? <laughs> yeah. 
I'd love to. I'd love there to be a new Lazenby in the. I was telling you this, Butler, that I think Bond needs a shake-up. I think it needs a a one-hit character that comes in. And you go, he wasn't right, and then in ten years' time, because the way we talk about Lazenby now is such an interesting part of the Bond story. That yeah, it's it's just exciting to 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 see those characters come in. Just that one-off one, yeah. I guess I, uh, the only yeah. time I think they could you could see that happening is if they did do a period a period set Bond. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, they, 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 if they do something that's too, that doesn't work, that it just only works for one go. Yeah, that they could just do a complete one-off, which would be really interesting, I think, but um, unlikely, I think. I think they need to keep moving, Bond moving forward with the times to keep him relevant, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, is there anything else to say on Barbara? I've read quite an interesting bit that sums up quite nicely one kind of her view on films, and I think it ties in quite nicely with how the Bond team and family do these things you know how they plan ahead so far they're not they're not looking for an actor to be in the next film that's so far from their mind that's what Mm. a normal director would do who's making a film and that's it they'll they'll make a film they get an actor in she says when you're dealing with a franchise you have to think in long term because most movies are about one movie my father always used to say in terms of studios and this and that temporary people making permanent decisions you can't put your hands in them you have to decide what you think is right it could be wrong what you decide but make it your decision i think we both learned a lot from our dads and got that strength and conviction from them that's that's quite a nice whole sentiment about planning it's all about the relationships you build with these people you can't upset casts and things like that and and you've got to build these kind of characters that can can last a while they're probably looking at you know, they're looking at the Bond actor who's going to take on the next films in 15 years' time or whatever. Mm-hmm. They must be way ahead with these. And that makes such a massive difference. If It'd be really difficult for her and, and could be in people to work on other films because of that. They're not thinking like a normal director or a producer. They're thinking, oh, I've got to make this ready for 2030. This arc's got to finish then, mm. which is such an alien way to plan these things, I imagine. I don't know how companies would even respond to that they're not thinking in those terms either they're thinking right we've got two films coming out we want at least to make this much money and she's saying and that's why the casting is so important when craig came in they were saying get another brosnan in because that's made a load of money we want another person like brosnan to do that and she's saying i'm going to change it i'm going to make someone Mm. a new bond and they're going no that made money this might not make money but she she's she's playing the long game and um that's think it's a big testament to doing that production role on on bond well, yeah, and, and, and that comes from Cubby as well, I guess. He was very yeah. single-minded in what he wanted. There's a, w- yeah. We'll talk about maybe more in Casino Royale, a Daniel Craig episode, but there's a lot of stories around Barbara and how insistent she was to get Daniel in the role and how she clashed with Sony studio executives and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story, yeah. you know, and we'll get into that in, in, in other episodes. But um, Well, it makes you wonder what could have happened if... If Cubby wasn't here earlier on, would Sam Neill be Bond or whatever? Mm-hmm. If she if she would she could actually made those decisions, but yeah, yeah it would have been a very different story for sure. I suppose the other, the only other thing to mention as well, and we talked about it in, in the intro, is it's a family business, and the children of, of Barbara and Michael G. Wilson are in the film industry now. Uh, the two sons of Michael G. Wilson are both have both worked as in production in some form in in previous films and angelica zollo who is barbara broccoli's daughter is a film director as well so i think it's going to be very exciting to see you know a new generation of these coming through and and hopefully we we're still around when when these films are are, are being developed and made and these guys are 
are taking on the family mantle because they're definitely doing the research and the work to learn how to do it now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it will all it will all tie in with what happens next with MGM, I guess, and what what the situation is is there is this the time that the family cashes out? I hope not. I yeah, really I hope, hope not. not. Yeah. It would be a shame, wouldn't it? It would be uh, yeah, a major I mean, you don't know what'll happen, but it's definitely going to lose that ethos, yeah. that family ethos. Yeah. Well, uh, should we wrap things up there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we've covered Barbara Broccoli pretty She's well. She's definitely one for the Hall of Fame. Um, oh, yes. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of, of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Uh, we've been your hosts, Tom Butler. Brendan Duffy. Tom Wheatley. And yeah, if you want to email the show, you can get us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Where else can you find us, chaps? Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, so Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. At James Bond A to Z. James Bondatoz. They James Bondatoz. Yeah, so th- <laughs> anything you want to let us know, if we've got anything wrong about Barbara, if you want to set us up with an interview with Barbara so we can learn about her doing If the, you are Barbara. If you are Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Please get in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear from uh, from you. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Join us again when James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z podcast. Mm, I like that. <laughs> thanks for listening. Bye. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.